Well, hey, everybody, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. What I'd like to do today is to respond to listeners who have responded to me regarding last week's episode on race race relations, which I called Towards a Post-Progressive View of Race Relations. And part one I did was how George Floyd's murder is growing up America. And the second part was reading Ibram X. Kendi and Thomas Sowell, who represent two streams of African-American intellectual thought. And, um, you know, just basic integral theory, we're going to take both of them into account as we move into new integral territory. And so I'll start with a letter that I loved. And, you know, I, I figured I'd have to do some summation of the last episode in order to set the stage for responding to listeners. And I actually think my listener, Marty, summarized things very well. She said, I listened for the third time to this episode on the Daily Evolver. You touched my soul with the eloquence and beauty of this integral discussion on the maddening scourge and horror of systemic racism and discrimination in our country. Listening to this, I felt greater clarity around this excruciating cultural ride we're all on. You also helped me to feel viscerally something exquisite surrounding all this as well. And then in parentheses, is that even allowed? She goes on, I think the aha moment for me was getting that African-Americans, our fellow citizens within many communities, are living out a tough yet very natural and rich stage of development that has been suppressed, thwarted, terrorized, and prevented from expressing and progressing to higher developmental stages. Wow. I pray what we are witnessing on our screens in real time is that very expansion you describe Thanks for helping to flesh this all out. I have so much appreciation for what you do in the Daily Evolver. So yeah, uh, the thesis that I was talking about in the last podcast was that African-Americans have been stretched over the spiral of development more than perhaps any other race of people, if you will, in, in the world. You know, snatched from a tribal developmental stage, uh, you know, doing their tribal thing and brought into a, a red situation of slavery and sort of left there in a way, you know. I mean, there has been a great cultural move. And of course, individual African-Americans are spread all over into integral and post-integral and all over the place. And the center of gravity has progressed, but there's this red beating heart that I make the point that we, we as a culture need that. As we move out the spiral, I'm trying to go out instead of up so much because all stages are still there. You would look from above at the spiral and see that that you know, indigenous core is still there, the tribal core is still there, the warrior core is still there, the traditional, the modern, the postmodern, and integral is about lighting them all up. And we see as we look at history that each stage moves forward partly by suppressing the previous stage. So there is a hollowed out core 
you know, among modernists that shows up uh, as, uh, you know, a, a, an alienation, a, a, a feeling of not being embedded in nature, of not being um, enmeshed with other people properly, uh, lacking in deep initiation and identity that are just, you know, the, the louche, the liquid space of these earlier stages. And that there is, you know, red culture in all races, of course. And I use Thomas Sowell's book about black rednecks, about how the redneck culture of the Scot Scots tribes from Scotland, um, as he put it, infected the black culture. Now, I critique that and say that that's a, those are stages of development that have the same features, as, as he so well points out. But no matter what the race, there is a red aesthetic that comes through that is some version of fuck you. I mean, it just is. It's some version of look at me and then what are you looking at? So that is just part of that culture at red that when, when uh, expressed in a center of gravity culture where you know, it doesn't get to run rampant in reality, but only in aesthetics. Uh, that is a way of metabolizing and bringing it online, which is why we see, even if we look at the race riots, if you will, that happened, these were, I mean, yes, every death, there was a dozen or so. Um, every storefront, every fire is a tragedy. But if we look at the, compare this to the early 90s, the riots in LA, or you know, go back to the 60s, um, where we had the, the race riots went on for months, and there were hundreds of people killed. That decrease in violence has been attended by, in some ways, an increase in outrage. Uh, and certainly, a um, what conservatives would call a coarsening of the culture with whether it's rap music or gangster or heavy metal or body modifications or of violent video games. All of this has come on, have come online since the 60s and have been attended by an ever increasing pacification of the population. I also give a lot of credit to Judge Judy and, uh, and I'm serious about that. I did a podcast called Judge Judy Evolution's Warrior that makes the case that this, you know, just the culture itself contains, you know, we have a culture now that contains many centers of gravity of human development. And the earlier ones, you know, are kind of ugly and scary. Uh, but, the, you know, we want to turn towards that. That's where there's a lot of juice. So that's the case I make. And you can listen to the podcast for further details on that. So next letter is from Pat and Pat writes, still loving your podcasts. I have been feeling and now beginning to believe that we are approaching one of those big bang moments. What is the evolving thought on statues and monuments? Sure feels like the right thing to do is bring them down, though that doesn't quite square with include and transcend. Good point. Perhaps the problem is the veneration. Can we include without venerating? What would that look like? Do you have a better thought? Thanks for your important works. You are truly a bright light. 
Oh, I love you people. I'll tell you, I can't imagine doing anything more fulfilling than this, you know, for a guy like me. Thank you. So thank you, Pat. And yeah, the statue thing is, you know, it's a, a mess. Um, one of the great reliefs of integral is that we don't expect things to not be a mess. Uh, we don't contract around any ideology that needs to win in order to, for us to feel good. And we see the whole process. And I do think that veneration is the key and that we can make a distinction. And I think we are making this distinction. I hear it on the news. There's some very smart people talking in the mainstream. People are waking up to this. Uh, MSNBC's Fox also, it's really remarkable to listen to people and what they're able to hold now. And this differentiation that I'm going to uh, unpack a little bit, I think is, you know, online coming online. And that is the difference between public art and you museum artifacts, you might say. And public art has to, on balance, transmit something that we venerate. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. But we're not going to take down the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial or the statue of Winston Churchill. On balance, those guys with all of their, their what are you going to call it, flaws to be an enslaver. And, you know, they would, I, 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 certainly the Latin, Jefferson and, and Churchill would have been me tooed into oblivion. Uh, they were colonialists. Uh, Winston Churchill was for sure. And, um, but on balance, you know, creating and saving Western civilization trumps that, if you'll pardon the expression. Robert E. Lee, you know, he was, he was a heroic figure in many ways, but, you know, I think he's probably off to the museum. So we'll see. Uh, it's not up to me. It's not up to Integral. It's up to uh, every community. And, and they do it in their own time and they fight it out and there'll be all sorts of accusations and consternation and hurt feelings. And um, that's how we muddle our way forward. So we differentiate public art from museum artifacts, history in the museum for sure, you know, all of it, torture. There's a museum of torture, you know, in Amsterdam, I think. There's, we want to know all of that. We want to see that, the Holocaust Museum in Berlin, for heaven's sakes. But public art is another, another thing. And we need to, on balance, it needs to express something that the community, which is an evolving entity for sure and we're seeing that but the community has to be on balance behind it all right next is from jacob in denmark and he comes at it from another angle here and more of a critique of uh, green and um i'll just read what he has to say he says, I enjoyed listening to your latest podcast yesterday. It brought insight and sense of hope that the current events of the war in the world overall is moving humanity towards growth and a deeper compassion. Thank you for your effort and sharing of your insights. Nevertheless, it leaves me, the episode, with a concerned notion that you might be too hopeful and even somewhat willfully blind in a time where this cannot be afforded. I hope I'm wrong, but feel the need to address this and bring some critical questions. And so he has a number of questions here. First, he says, 
Are you balanced in the distinction between the virtues and the pathologies of emerging green and other current movements? Is the integral world and you really realistic about how these pathologies are influencing the world right now? Or are we somewhat naive? The fallacies in sense-making and lack of nuanced objectivity seems grave in 2020. And in parentheses, he says, Sam Harris and the Weinstein brothers have recently addressed this very intelligently. And these guys are, um, well, Sam Harris uh, has a really great podcast. I like Sam Harris a lot. The Weinstein brothers, I'm not as familiar with, but part of their brand for sure, and Sam Harris also, is a critique against green. And uh, particularly their uh, pr proliferation and uh, totalitarian impulses in academia. He says, what is the impact of this post-truth feelings over fact tendency? Where can it lead us? He goes on, the impact and meaning of virtue signaling and nonsense PC used by liberals and the public, has this grown to covert impelled speech and censorship? People don't feel free to disagree with Black Lives Matter, and the progressive media and public opinion is somewhat imprisoned by a shame censorship. Are we seeing a massive collective pre-trans fallacy where a lot of people are acting or feeling forced to act green, and therefore as non-embodied anti-racists? He says, the problem with the growing progressive left, like Antifa, that is neither progressive nor left, but acts more like a combative and aggressive, semi-psychotic, narcissistic bully with the weaponized victim narrative. In short, has the media landscape created a place where infantile, misguided narcissism is gaining power and even taking over? Is narcissism the new normal? And what are the long-term consequences of this? Will this bring or destroy true anti-racism and genuine progress? Wow. Um, well, kind of all of the above, but let me just describe how I see this. I, I use the term post-progressive these days because I really do want to make a distinction between integral thinking about politics and current events, at least as I see it. You know, I'm not the integral police, but I'm doing my thing here. And how that differentiates from progressivism as it's typically thought of, and, you know, where I was for a long time. And what we try to do in Integral is we want to integrate, we want green, we want to take green into Integral, we want to take orange into Integral, modernism, we want to take uh, amber, blue, traditionalism, and even the warrior, and tribal, loosh, and community, and initiation, and the juice even of awareness without a lot of discursive thought that comes from that indigenous sort of mists of time. That's all in us still. And we want all of that. But we want to differentiate at every stage what is the mean and healthy version of that. So first of all, we want to recognize that there's mean every stage as it comes online. And the meanness comes from the idea that they're the only right one, whether it's a one tribe versus another, and that the people who aren't in your circle of moral consideration need to be dealt with. 
And, you know, fortunately at the later stages where our center of gravity is modern and postmodern, it's nonviolent. But that's a first, you know, that's a few hundred years old and not even. But in early stages, you know, there's absolutely mean red. It's one of the differentiations that I wanted to make in the last podcast is that there's red behavior of going out and, you know, causing trouble and rioting and killing and criminal behavior and gang behavior and all of that is, you know, that needs to be suppressed. One of my listeners said, you know, you, you can't just say that red culture is the solution to red behavior. Uh, and, and, and I get that, you know, red culture, actually red aesthetics in terms of that kind of culture, the acting out aesthetically, nonviolently, artistically, that fuck you red thing is a healthy thing. That's actually moves the ball forward and, and fleshes, you know, fleshes us out. But the cultural cure for red is blue or amber, traditionalism. And they come in and civilize red and makes everybody sit in a row and, uh, and, and worship God. And so we can see, see that differentiation between the unhealthy red and the healthy red. We still want to see that. And so many integralists uh, and certainly, you know, modernists, postmodernists, uh, you know, even my liberal friends. It's like you talk about the coarseness of hip hop music and how that reflects on African-Americans and does it reflect on it. It becomes a topic you can't talk about. You know, because it's just so incendiary, because the the only explanation, if everything is reduced to race or culture, is there's something wrong with those people, just like there is the rednecks, just like there is these, you know, whatever. Now, Green, of course, is trying to let that in. Uh, and uh, they ha have can't differentiate healthy from mean. And so Green is often um, colonized by an unhealthy red. And we see that in how the, you know, liberal sort of, this is Thomas Sowell's critique, is that, you know, black rednecks and white liberals is that white liberals actually enable this and perpetuate it because they're not willing to see it. And so, you know, that's going on. So we have mean red, we have mean, of course, traditionalism and positive traditionalism. Civilization's a great thing, but it also comes online with this brutal suppression of the earlier stage. So we suppress magic with myth, you know, instead of power gods that we, you know, operationalize in the world, we have a transcendent God that we worship. And, uh, and if you don't do that, then you have to be burned at the stake. And so there's a totalitarian traditionalism that you know, is the enemy of green, you know, it's the, it's the hypocrite, it's the, you know, small-minded religious patriot, all of that sort of thing, is all marginalized by green as unhealthy traditionalism without a recognition of the healthy part of traditionalism, which is the sense that there's actually something greater than me, that this world is not my home, that my life matters, that I'm a precious creation of Almighty God in one way or the other. Now, they all have this very narrow ethnocentric definition of what that is that they can't get out of because, again, the mean aspect of any stage is the part that thinks that only it's right. And people who don't see it the way they do have to be suppressed or worse. So then we go into orange modernity. Well, how can you argue with modernity? It tripled lifespans, it created the indoors, it created 
you know, the world that we live in, the, this amazing place where I don't have to worry about uh, walking the streets. Or getting enough to eat. But what's the mean part of orange? So mean orange is the part of modernity that is blind to its effects on the biosphere or blind to its banal ignorance of other cultures, how it just steamrolls over everything and pollutes and, you know, and, you know, we're, we're seeing the effects of mean orange. So mean green, did we expect a new stage of development to come online without a mean aspect? And yes, it, 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 it is a danger. There are people being hurt. By mean green. There, there is a reverse racism. There is a, uh, you know, a political correct thought police and speech police. And there is a, people get, you know, he talked about being infantilized with feelings and over facts. That's true. Sensitivity, you know, we, one of the reasons green arose in the first place is that we saw that facts, the thing that we Enlightenment orange modernists thought was going to save the world, actually just allowed us to mechanize genocide in World War II. And, uh, you know, and the, the pogroms of the early part of the 20th century. So fuck your thinking. You know, that's green. Now, green doesn't have a sense of including and transcending. Green has a sense of being oppressed and trying to rescue the victims of the previous stage. It's not such a bad impulse. But are they, some of them going to be totalitarian? Yes. And are we going to, and are we seeing uh, gross unfairnesses in college campuses and, and you know, HR departments and places where green is ascendant, a kind of mean green? Yes, we are. And that needs to be countered. And there is a, uh, you know, the, the, the dark web and the new right or whatever you want to call it, Sam Harris and Weinstein and J Jordan Peterson, and, uh, and those are all different. I'm not trying to lump them together, but there is a, uh, a, a antithesis to that green totalitarianism that is arising that I support. I support both, actually. And that's, you know, the rub of Integral is that I don't expect a world where that's not going to be the case. Uh, in some ways, I recognize that I'm in a privileged position as an old retired guy where I don't have to fight it. If I were, I wouldn't feel so, you know, sanguine about the whole thing. I have friends who are, I have a friend, young friend in Portland who is, you know, Boulder wasn't liberal enough for him. So he moved to Portland. And and now he's like, as a straight heterosexual, as a straight white male, it's hard for him to do anything right. And it, with his group of friends and the you know, social milieu of this mean green that has that city in its thrall right now, I guess they're occupying a bridge. So, yeah, we see that. We, we want to have that resistance. Is that my calling personally? No, I mean I'll point it out like I just did, and uh, and bemoan it, and uh, and encourage anybody who's motivated to fight against it, uh, as I will and do, and vote and so forth. But I also um, think that 
part of the way forward is an ever increasing sensitivity actually that we're green and all of these stages. I mean, just theoretically, they all want to get bigger. And so I don't have a lot of juice around the condemnation of mean green as in terms of it being my sort of, you know, the sword I'm carrying, but that I want to differentiate what's mean and what isn't as I do from all of these previous stages so that we actually can create a world where the best of all of them are online and allowed to integrate. And, and also that there is, and this is why post-progressivism is important, is that the progressive story really does focus on, on the victim and oppression narrative. I mean, that's a story you can tell about America. It's an absolutely true story from the Native Americans on uh, through the slaves and Jim Crow and, and the continuation. You know, I talk about racism in the inner interior quadrants. You know, you can only legislate behaviors, and we have, and then there's the rest of it, the part that's just sort of grinding under the surface that we're continuing to grow. I mean, we're having a huge growth spurt. The whole spiral is turning in these last three weeks since George Floyd. And, um, and that's a wonderful thing. Oh, discussion. So uh, let me actually just read one more paragraph from Jacob. And he talks about how we're getting dumber. <laughs> and he says, an interesting approach here is to compare the arguments, the rhetoric and methods in the recent pot protests with those of LA 92 before the riotings and lootings. And for me, it seems that human beings overall had better sense-making capabilities 30 years ago. Although I agree with you that more people have moved up into orange, green, and even integral since 92, what good is it if people can't fucking think? <laughs> I feel you, bro. Uh, what I would say is that sense-making is... Um, you say better sense-making capabilities 30 years ago. And that is before this sort of proliferation of green sensitivity. It was there, but it's really there now. Sense-making still there. In fact, I would argue that we have better sense now than we did 30 years ago in terms of policing and all sorts of things, which is, I think, evidenced by the radical decrease of crime since the early 90s overall. And because of our, you know, increasing sensitivity over a problem that is ever diminishing. And that can feel like craziness, especially when you're threatened by it in some way. And I get that. I get that I'm not, you know, I, I did a master's degree in uh, uh, divinity at Naropa back in the early 2000s. And that was plenty green. And I was glad I had my gay card because that's all I had. I was a middle-aged biz white business guy otherwise. And so I get that. And, and, you know, the fear of talking and, you know, as I often say, I, I know what I can and cannot say at a Boulder dinner party to this day. Is that taking over? Not when you see statistics like one I've often cited, I think it's a Pew poll, that shows that even 75% of African-Americans think that PC culture has gone too far. 
you know, people get it. Yes, they get cowed by it. Yes, the media is in a few group think fugue often a lot of the times, which is why I'm glad Fox News exists, actually. Uh, but it's like you said here, um, virtue signaling and pretending to be more her, you know, more upset and more green than they actually are. I think that's true. I think it's one of Trump's secret weapons. I think he's counting on that. But I would also point out that hypocrisy itself is a stage in the path. It is. It's like at least you know enough to pretend that you get it. And, you know, we have hypocrisy all up the stages of development, and we got our green version of it right now. And yeah, sometimes I just have to fast forward or, you know, tune into a nice war documentary from the past to soothe my troubled soul, you know. Anyway, that's that. Some thoughts on all that. And uh, I think I'll end with another positive one. I know you're not supposed to really read praise, but I can't help it in this case. This was a one sentence uh, message from uh, listener Allison, and I just loved it. And she wrote, what you do is dispel anxiety and confusion and bring more clarity and openness and space for love. Oh, that's what I'm trying to do here. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Daily Evolver. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. You can write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. You can go to the website and click on the Connect tab and subscribe to my newsletter, which is basically just an announcement when I put out a new podcast. And you'll also see an orange button where you can leave me a voicemail, which I sometimes play on the show. And um, yeah, so there you go. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for those of you listening live. And thanks for Integral Life for doing what you guys do and everybody who's moving the ball here. You know, I actually feel such movement and I'm literally bodily thrilled a lot of the time about what we're seeing day to day. All right. Okay, see you next time.